G'day, mate. Forty here. We're standing by live to go to Tucker Carlson in New York. Gosh, I, I sure he hope he doesn't, you know, spread any hate speech. I don't believe those lies that these crazy right wingers try to teach you about uh, the Great Replacement. All right. I mean, yeah, the United Nations might be talking all the time about uh, replacement migration, but it's good, right? It's good when the United Nations does it, right? The United Nations says that the United States needs replacement migration. The United Kingdom needs replacement migration, right? That's good. Japan, Korea, Russia, France, Germany, right? They all need replacement migration. So when the good and holy talk about replacement migration, that's a good thing. But otherwise, to to suggest that somehow that there are political policies that we can pass, that there are there are administrative things we can do to reduce immigration into our country, that's that's just racist. And I, I hope hope you guys don't fall for it. Because immigration, it's just like the tide. There's absolutely nothing we can do about immigration. So come on, guys. You just need to sit back and enjoy it. This is a Fox News alert. Polls have just closed in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. There's a very intense primary underway there on the Republican side, you may have heard. Primaries in four other states are wrapping up as well. We're going to have the -the up-to-the-moment election results throughout the show and, of course, tonight on Fox News. But first, good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Last May, a 17-year-old high school senior called Peyton Gendron received an assignment in his economics class. The assignment asked, what do you want to do when you retire? He answered, commit murder-suicide. Gendron's teacher immediately reported his threat to authorities who sent him to the emergency room for a psychiatric evaluation. Gendron was there for just 20 hours. As he wrote later in his diary, quote, I got out of it because I stuck with the story that I was getting out of class and I just stupidly wrote that down. That's the reason I believe I am still able to purchase guns. But he was lying. Gendron's intention to commit mass murder was, as he later wrote, quote, not a joke. I wrote that down because that's what I was planning to do. And he was. Peyton Gendron was mentally ill. His classmates knew that. Gendron made strange facial expressions and said odd things in class. Last year, he showed up for school for a full week wearing a hazmat suit. Boots, gloves, everything, recalled another student. Police and school administrators understood perfectly well that Gendron was potentially dangerous. That's why they sent him to the psych ward. Even his own parents must have known that something was very wrong. Gendron's diary describes how his mother helped him bury a cat he had beaten to death in their garage and then beheaded with a hatchet. On Saturday, Peyton Gendron, as you know, finally did what he said he would do. He committed mass murder. He opened fire on a crowd of strangers in a Buffalo supermarket. He murdered 10 of them. So how did the adults around him let this happen? In a country with functioning leadership, we would be asking that question. The signs of mental illness were certainly there. The people in charge missed those signs or didn't take them seriously enough, weren't paying close enough attention. In any case, they didn't fix it. They let a killer slip through. So what did they do wrong with Peyton Gendron and how can we learn from it? We should learn from it if we want to prevent more mass murders. But that's not at all what our leaders are asking tonight, hardly. Instead, they're asking the only question that ever occurs to them. How exactly can I benefit from this? How can I leverage this tragedy to my advantage? How can other people's suffering make me more powerful? It didn't take long for Joe Biden to find a way. Biden flew to Buffalo this morning to speak about what Peyton Gendron did. There have been a number of mass murders since Biden became president. Some of them have been racially motivated. 
A little over a year ago, in fact, there was even another supermarket massacre that happened to have the same casualty total. A Syrian-born man murdered 10 people in Boulder, Colorado. He even used the same caliber rifle that patron Gendron brought to Buffalo. But Joe Biden didn't bother to fly to that crime scene. He didn't go to any of them, in fact. Biden went to Buffalo today because he thought he could blame his political opponents for what happened there, which, of course, he promptly did. Watch. And other nations ask me, heads of state in other countries, ask me, what's going on? What in God's name happened on January 6th? What happened in Buffalo? What happened? They'll ask. January 6th and the Buffalo massacre. So how is a political protest at the Capitol related to a murder spree by a demented teenager in New York State over the weekend? What do those two events have in common? And who exactly are these unnamed heads of state who are connecting these non-connected events in conversations with Joe Biden? You may have wondered that, but don't ask because it's not meant to be asked. It is instead a dream sequence. It's a rhetorical device meant to connect everything that might challenge Joe Biden and bunch all of these things together in the same repulsive moral category. January 6th, mass murder, the bubonic plague, it's all the same, it's all bad. And because it's bad, Joe Biden informed us today, after 250 years, we're going to have to suspend the Bill of Rights. And we're going to begin where the Bill of Rights begins, with the freedom of speech. You can't prevent people from being radicalized to violence. But we can address the relentless exploitation of the Internet to recruit and mobilize terrorism. The relentless exploitation of the Internet to recruit and mobilize terrorism. Okay. But can anyone show, has anyone ever shown, that this specific case, Peyton Gendron, was, quote, recruited and mobilized by the Internet? Well, no, in fact. By his own account, he was mentally ill. He snapped. He'd been planning this for a long time. He did what his diseased brain commanded him to do. The Internet did not make him do it. He did it himself. But even if Gendron had been, quote, radicalized by what he read on the Internet, what then exactly? Many have been radicalized by what they've read. Paul Pot was radicalized by reading Das Kapitel. He went on a murder spree. He killed more than a million people. Should we ban that book? Should we ban all books, all Internet sites that, quote, radicalize people? What exactly is Joe Biden saying here? Well, he's saying that thanks to what happened in Buffalo over the weekend, you no longer have any rights at all, including the most basic, which is to read what you want. After nullifying the First Amendment, Joe Biden moved to the Second Amendment. The venom of the haters and their weapons of war, the violence and the words and deeds the, 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 that stalk our streets, our stores, our schools, this venom, this violence cannot be the story of our time. But there are certain things we can do. We can keep assault weapons off our streets. We've done it before. So because a mentally ill 18-year-old used a specific rifle to commit these crimes, you can't have that rifle. Now, Joe Biden's bodyguards can have that rifle. So can Nancy Pelosi's. And of course, they do. In fact, you pay for it all. But they're important. And you are not. So you can't. So because the people in charge fail to protect shoppers in Buffalo, you're not allowed to defend your family, despite the fact you may believe your family's every bit as important as Joe Biden and his family and Nancy Pelosi and her family. But they're not as important. So we're going to defund the police and disarm you. That's how it works now. Sorry. And then Joe Biden got to the main point of his speech, which is that people who criticize his immigration policies are responsible for the violence you saw in Buffalo. 
Here's the President of the United States explaining that. I hate that through the media and politics, the Internet has radicalized, angry, alienated, lost, and isolated individuals into falsely believing that they will be replaced, that's the word, replaced, by the other. And I condemn those who spread the lie for power, political gain, and for profit. So you lock the country down, lock kids out of their schools for two years, force them to get, quote, educated on the Internet, but it's someone else's fault that they're, quote, alienated. They've been hearing about the great replacement theory. You've heard a lot about the great replacement theory recently. It's everywhere in the last two days, and we're still not sure exactly what it is. Here's what we do know for a fact. There is a strong political component to the Democratic Party's immigration policy. We're not guessing this. We know this, and we know it because they have said so. They've said it again and again and again. They've written books on it and monographs and magazine articles. They've bragged about it endlessly. They talk about it on cable news constantly. And they say out loud, we are doing this because it helps us to win elections. That's not something they said once. It's something they've gloated about again and again and again. And we think that's wrong. And in case you doubt us, here they are. Blue Wave is African-American. Yeah. It's white, it's Latino, it's Asian Pacific Islander. It is made up of those who've been told that they are not worthy of being here. It is comprised of those who are documented and undocumented. In a couple of presidential cycles, you'll be on election night. You'll be announcing that we're calling the 38 electoral votes of Texas for the Democratic nominee for president. It's changing. It's going to become a purple state and then a blue state because of the demographics. The demographics of America are not on the side of the Republican Party. The new voters in this country are moving away from them. And instead, they're moving to be independents or to even vote on the other side. An unrelenting stream of immigration. Non-stop. Non-stop. Folks like me who were Caucasian of European descent for the first time in 2017 will be in an absolute minority in the United States of America. Absolute minority. Fewer than 50% of the people in America from then and on will be white European stock. That's not a bad thing. That's a, that's a source of our strength. <laughs> so you play clips of them saying it, and you're the deranged conspiracy nut. Maybe the funniest part is they may not be right. The Democratic Party has decided that rather than convince you people who are born here, that their policies are helping you and making the country better and stronger, they will change the electorate. Again, they say that. We're not guessing. But the funniest part is they may be wrong, actually, judging by recent polling. It turns out your average Salvadoran landscaper has politics that are a lot closer to Donald Trump's than they are to Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi. So their basic calculation may be completely wrong. But that's not even the point. There's nothing to do with who we're letting in. There's nothing with race and ethnicity. It has to do with two things. One, the purpose of the U.S. government is to serve American citizens, period. And two, you should never craft any federal, which is to say nationwide policy, in order to help a specific political party. That is by itself in isolation immoral. It doesn't matter what the policy is. And that's exactly what they're doing. And again, they brag about it. And not just Democratic Party politicians. Virtually every media figure on the left has been bragging about this for decades. Oh, it's a 
conspiracy theory. Really? Well, here's Anna Navarro from her time as a Harvard fellow. This is what she wrote, quote, the demographic trends show that the minority vote in the United States will continue to grow in numbers and influence. Unless you're under the influence of hallucinogens, it is hard to imagine future scenarios where the Republican Party can win national elections. That piece, by the way, is called Old White Straight Male Voters Ain't What They Used to Be, end quote. So let's see, if you don't want people to be paranoid and angry, maybe you don't write pieces like that and rub it right in their face and give them the finger day after day. Maybe that would de-escalate it a little bit. You think, Joe Biden, Anna Navarro? But they're not the only two. This has been the prevailing view on the left for a long time. Here's a political piece from 2013. We could go on for hours, by the way, but here's this, quote, immigration reform could be a bonanza for Democrats. The Democratic Party, the piece said, are, are, quote, pumping as many as 11 million new Hispanic voters into the electorate a decade from now in ways that could produce an electoral bonanza for Democrats and cripple Republican prospects in many states they now win easily, end quote. Again, as noted, that calculation may be completely wrong. A lot of those people the Democrats are importing may wind up being deeply sympathetic to the other party because they're actually not white liberals. That's the secret. But it almost doesn't matter how they vote. Thinking about politics in those terms is immoral. That is wrong. You are gaming the system. That is not democracy. It's the opposite. And they bragged about it for more than a decade. Here's another example, also from 2013. The Center for American Progress announced that, quote, supporting real immigration reform that contains a pathway to citizenship for our nation's 11 million undocumented immigrants is the only way to maintain electoral strength in the future. Oh, race repla great replacement theory, anyone? These people are lunatics. They're telling you what their strategy is. When you note it, they scream at you and call you a criminal. In 2018, the New York Times published an editorial called We Can Replace Them. <laughs> Just in case subtlety is not your thing. Quote, right now, America is tearing itself apart as an embittered white conservative minority clings to power, terrified at being swamped by a new multiracial polyglot majority. Right. Okay. In 2020, Joe Scarborough, a real moral voice over at MSNBC, quoted this, Trumpism accelerated damage done by demographic changes and will harm Republicans for years. Demographics is destiny, end quote. Are you allowed to say that? Once again, they're wrong. And if you haven't looked at an electoral map recently, look at the districts, the almost 100% Hispanic districts in the Rio Grande Valley that are bearing the brunt of our open borders. They're now red. So you're wrong, Joe Scarborough, but the fact that you're saying demographics is destiny tells you the great replacement theory is coming from the left. They don't think it's a theory. They think it's real. In 2021, the Washington Post's Jen Rubin celebrated a report that the number of white people in this country was declining. Can you even imagine? Quote, this is fabulous news, she wrote. Now we need to prevent minority white rule. My God, talking like that. Is there any more divisive thing you could write? We could give you a million more examples. We're offended by this because it's wrong, and we've said so. But for saying so, according to Carl Cameron on MSNBC today, we should be thrown in jail. Watch. You got to watch out because the Republicans have become the purveyors of misinformation. And when our, our two-party system is broken like that, democracy is seriously in trouble. The president acknowledged that. It's time to actually start doing things and maybe taking some names and putting people in jail. Maybe taking some names and putting people in jail. Hmm. Who would those people be? Well, thanks to the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York, we now know 
Schumer just sent a letter to our bosses here at Fox News blaming this show for the mass murder in Buffalo as well as several other mass shootings in recent years. According to Chuck Schumer, this show spreads, quote, dangerous rhetoric and needs to be pulled off the air immediately in the name of public safety. Now, again, Chuck Schumer is a federal official. He is the leading Democrat in the United States Senate. And he is calling for media censorship. Now, there was a time, like maybe 18 months ago, and that would be considered a direct violation of the First Amendment. Now, we hear it every day. Let's just throw them in jail. We wanted to hear more from Chuck Schumer about this. We invited him on the show tonight, as we always do. And because he is a coward, this is the only media appearance probably in history he's turned down. But we upgraded. Shelby Steele is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the writer of What Killed Michael Brown. Shelby Steele joins us tonight. Mr. Steele, thanks so much for coming on. Um, as noted, I, I, I think that the, the Democratic theory about replacing the electorate is actually wrong. I think they're not getting what they think they're getting, um, which is kind of amusing. But the Okay, I think I can uh, skip uh, Shelby Steele. But I felt a, a kind of a strange tingle going up my back when I read this article in the Washington Post. I lied to them for months. Buffalo shooting suspect kept plans from family. I mean, that reminds me of my childhood. I was like lying to my parents for months and years about the porn magazines that I had hidden around the house and around the yard. I, I was keeping my, my secret life, you know, trying to keep it, keep it secret, keep it away from my parents. Like I had these nefarious plans. I was living in Auburn, California, Newcastle, California at the time. And I was wanking and then fornicating all over God's little green acre. And I was trying to keep that from my parents. I was afraid that they would discover that I was bent on a fuckathon. That I was just going to go out and just like spray, 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 spray. I, I thought they were going to find out. It, it was incredibly frightening. I lived with this guilt, just like Peyton Gendron. Like, he formulated a plan to kill dozens of black people. Well, I formulated a plan to, to murder millions of potential lives by just spilling my essence here and there, you know, up mine shafts and behind trees and God forbid in our guest room and God forbid in my in my father's bathtub and in our neighbor's bedroom and in our neighbor's bathtub and in, in the back of my Volkswagen bug. I, I was like all ready to just just destroy millions of unborn lives. And does not our holy Kabbalah remind us that, that one drop of, of male essence contains millions of potential lives? And I was just murdering millions of potential lives all over the gold country. I don't think you can walk more than a few steps in the gold country, in, in Auburn and, and Newcastle and that area. I don't think you can explore any of those old ancient you know, mine shafts where, where all the 49ers went to, to mine gold. And, and if you borrow a black light from Nick Fuentes, you're going to find my radioactive man essence like plastered all over that place. And I was trying to keep that a secret. Uh, I literally can't wait any longer. My parents know something is wrong, Peyton Gendron wrote a April 15th. I mean, I felt the same way. Yeah, I, I thought that, that people, you know, could realize that something was wrong. I was just like busting at the seams to, to bust a nut. And the problem is like once I'd been to Paris, it was really hard to return to tranquil, holy, you know, Christ-like life uh, on the farm of, of chastity. Like once I busted a nut in Paris... 
I mean, I was just on a rampage. I mean, every attractive woman, she was just fodder. I just couldn't wait to get her in the back of my Datsun 1979 station wagon and go all apricot sky on her. I mean, I was so debauched. I even started drinking coffee for the first time in my life. I think I was 27 when I started drinking coffee. I went into my father's bathtub. I mean, just because this woman had like enormous gazungas, like I, I took her into my father, the Seventh-day Adventist minister's bathtub and desecrated that sacred place, you know, with my carnal loss, with my carnal urges. And yet I was trying to, you know, code speak like I was trying to speak to, to my parents, like I was, you know, a God-fearing person. And at the same time, when my parents were gone, I was just spilling my seed here, there, everywhere. Like every, you know, willing, attractive young female recipient, I was just sharing my essence with. I mean, it was hardly godly behavior. And so I kind of lived with this this fear that my parents would find out what was really going on. And God forbid, that's exactly what happened. I got, I got reckless, all right? I, I just got drunk on my fornication. And right in the middle of the day, I, I went and took a shower with this woman who was staying with me. I mean, boy, was was my father upset that he found out that I'd been using his holy home for fornication. And so when Peyton Gendron, you know, walks around, you know, with, with all this guilt, right, his writings revealed a teenage intent. Well, I had a teenage intent not of killing anyone, but, well, just snuffing out millions of unborn lives. Right, so he wrote his parents were unaware of the powerful weapons he was acquiring. Well, my parents were unaware of the powerful, seductive weapons that I was acquiring. They were unaware of my dark charms that, that were luring women into not just bed, but the floor, uh, the bathtub, uh, I mean, down by the river, right, beside the creek, on those big granite rocks, right? I, I was practicing my, my dark arts. Uh, Peyton says he didn't didn't want his parents to know he was buying and selling silver coins to finance his ammunition purchases. Well, I've always been too cheap to spend much money on my womanizing. He lied to them about attending a local community college. He had secretly quit this year. He fretted about the possibility they would discover his subterfuge. You don't think I was fretting the possibility that while I was I was living at home during my chronic fatigue syndrome that my parents would would, would find out that I was fornicating three times a day and then collapsing, you know, back onto my sick bed. My parents know a little about me, he wrote February 22nd. They don't know about the hundreds of silver ounces I've had or the hundreds of dollars I've spent on ammo. I mean, what about all the dollars I spent on pornography? Like all, all the porn magazines that, that I hid under the house or, or that I hid in, in like abandoned buildings nearby or out in the bushes, you know, on, on, the, on, on the back roads to school. Like, I was hiding Playboy magazines, Penthouse magazines, Hustler magazines, Genesis magazines. I mean, some really dark, debauched material. Like, I, I just had it scattered all over the gold country so that, you know, it would always be convenient to, to find solace. So his parents are civil engineers. Well, my parents were, were people of God. Uh, Peyton Gendron espoused great replacement theory. Oh, thank God I've never done that. It's an idea popular among the far right that holds that there is a conspiracy to replace native-born Americans with immigrants. There is no evidence in his parents' limited online footprint that they shared those views. Well, God forbid, of course, my parents didn't, didn't share my, my fornicating views. Wow. 
that walking into the garage one night, Peyton Gendron found a feral cat attacking his own cat. Gendron repeatedly stabbed the feral cat with a knife, smashed its head on a concrete slab, finally chopped off its head with a hatchet. He posted a photo of the decapitated hat surrounded by wet leaves. I called my mom. She gave me a box. I dug a shallow grave on the backyard. Well, what about the times I was walking home from school and then I'd go take a not so quick, you know, dip behind the trees and the bushes and, and have my wanton way with, with a copy of Hustler magazine? I mean, pretty horrifying. All the time, I think I was watching Debbie Does Dallas 2 in the living room and rubbing one out when my holy father was in the kitchen right next door and there's no there's no door like i mean he was in the room next door there's just like open space i'm rubbing one out to debbie does dallas too and my father's preparing his his shabbat sermon i mean how debauched and lost was i uh gendron recounts tensions with black students at school i i I occasionally had some tensions with with black students i remember one like yelled at me when I held a door open for him because he says, you know, I hate what your people have done to my people. And then other black students would, would try to come over to our side of the bleachers during basketball games and football games and try to pick fights. So there was there was some tension there. Uh, very few black students overall at Placer High School. So Gendron did not consider himself a true racist until 2020. Well, I didn't consider myself a true fornicator until 1989. But then once I'd seen Paris it was really hard to to go back to the the farm of of chastity. In June of last year, Gendron underwent a psychiatric evaluation after he said in an online high school class that planned to commit murder-suicide. He was cleared after he told evaluators he was joking to get out of class. So for years, he owned a Savage Axis XP bolt-action hunting rifle, a Christmas present from his father when he was 16. So starting December 2021, he began buying more weapons. His parents thought he was attending community college. And then he was taking these trips to Buffalo to plan his shooting. And he got a speeding ticket. I'm compromised, guys, he wrote March 26. I got mail saying I was speeding in Groveland. And now my dad knows I was hours away doing something I shouldn't have. Well, how do you think I felt uh, for years out there fornicating and, and wanking and, and doing things that I know I should not have done? His parents confronted him later that week. I just had a meeting with my parents about everything that happened this week. Yeah, I mean, my parents wrote me out of the will. They were devastated, absolutely devastated when they found out their son was a fornicator. Says, I lied nearly the entire time. I said I was doing fine in school. I was going to every class, and I hadn't been in class for weeks. See, the, these addictions just take take over your life. I've completely disconnected from my past. It's like I was reborn and forced to fit force-fed memories I'm supposed to believe are connected to me, but in reality it's not. And I think my father said if someone was to read your website, they'd have no idea of the, you know, the godly, kind, you know, Christ-like, you know, wonderful kid that you used to be. It, you know, he, he was distressed at how, how debauched I've become. He, Peyton says, I should have kept all my illegal stuff and guns in my car just in case my, my parents or, or my, my brother um, would uh, walk in on me. I've lied to them for months now. He wrote about his parents May 5. I've been lucky at manipulating their emotions to blame themselves for my strange behavior, if only they knew. God forbid, God forbid that I should do such a thing. God forbid. Okay, we'll keep an eye on the electoral returns. It looks like uh, that Cawthorn bloke is uh, not, not doing as well as he would have liked. 
Let's get some uh, perspective here. So from... in this video, I'm going to talk about lies. Sean lies. And I think if anything, doing that is counterproductive towards the end of stopping shootings like this from occurring because one of the problems that happens in society is that an idea will become taboo. And if someone comes to find arguments for that idea in the first place, if the idea is wrong, they don't feel comfortable enough to discuss the idea uh, to be shown why it's wrong. And in the second place, even worse, if the idea is true, or at least if they perceive it's true, uh, then they end up feeling a deep sense of alienation from society that can drive them a bit uh, crazy, I think. And so the rest of this video, for the most part, is going to be about certain just true facts about the world that as a society we should come to uh, deal with, with the knowledge that we can accept these things as being true without having to think that we should treat anyone indecently on account of their uh, ethnic background. Now, the simplest, I suppose, and first sort of line to expose here is people are pretending as if they think that if an idea inspires an act of domestic violence... Well, then the people who spread that idea need to be shut down, and the idea itself is repugnant. Now, of course, no one actually thinks this. No one actually thinks that because of the mass murders of John Brown or Nat Turner that the abolition movement should have been ended and slavery should have continued. Uh, you could apply the same sort of argument to say the civil rights movement should have been ended or that uh, that guy who shot up the congressman's baseball game implies that the idea is that progressives like Bernie Sanders spread today should be – like no one actually thinks this. We all understand that crazy people just exist in all parts of uh, the ideological spectrum. And, and so now people, I think they're not you know, lying consciously, but they're lying to themselves and pretending to believe this kind of thing that they don't believe. Another thing I'm seeing a lot on social media and in articles is this trope about the white mass murderer. So that's worth briefly noting. You know, this is from the New York Times and their analysis. Uh, I think it was people who had killed four more people that three-fourths of the suspects uh, were black, which is obviously vastly overrepresented. You can look at this data from the uh, Bureau of Justice Statistics from 76 to 2005. Black people accounted for about 41% of people who killed multiple victims. You can also look at uh, data from the Justice Department. Black people are overrepresented among people that commit hate crimes, and white people are slightly underrepresented. So it is true that there's a trope that we're exposed to a lot in the media of the white mass murderer, you know, hate crime offender. Uh, but that is not reflective of reality. That's the media. That is an example of the media instilling a, a false stereotype in the minds of many people. Now, another thing I'm seeing talked a lot about is this idea that there are all these black people who, when they are accused of committing violence in the presence of police, they're killed. But there are all these white people who, when they commit mass murder in front of the police, uh, they're somehow brought in safely. And why is that? But in fact, if you compare the rate at which people are killed by police to the rate at which they assault or kill police themselves, black people are far less likely than white people to be killed by police. And to be specific, for every black person who kills or assaults a police officer, there are five black people who are killed by police in this country. But for every white person who kills or assaults a police officer, there are eight white people killed by police in this country. So, you know, you can also use a homicide rate as a benchmark and only look at people who are shot while unarmed and not aggressing. And you come to the same conclusion that whites are far more likely to have been killed by police under such circumstances. So that these anecdotes, and some of these anecdotes aren't even real examples of innocent people being killed by police, but some of them are. Uh, but they're not representative of the general pattern in society. And so, again, this is the media telling you something that is misleading. The most informative thing to say about these lists that I keep seeing on Twitter and the like is just the fact that you should take note that people know the names of white murderers and black victims, uh, but do not know the names of white victims and black murderers. And that tells you much more about society's biases than these unrepresentative lists do in the way that they're commonly being interpreted. Now, the shooter, he was motivated by a set of theories that people are now talking a lot about. And one of the big ones is this idea of white replacement. People are calling it a conspiracy theory. Now, of course, it is just a fact that no one denies that white people are going to become a minority in the country fairly soon. Certain left-wing politicians like Joe Biden famously call this a good thing. And this change that is occurring is pretty substantive. In the first place, we're switching from a society which is mostly made up of people who do not consider their race or ethnicity to be very important to who they are 
a true society that will be mostly made of people who do think that race and ethnicity is very or extremely important to who they are. Now, the consequence of holding that kind of ethnic identity is a degree of racial bias. You can see this in discrimination experiments where you have two groups of people that are faced with a similar question about what to do in a given situation. And in one case, the situation involves a black person, the other a white person, but otherwise everything is identical. And when you analyze lots of these experiments, what you find is that white people on average don't exhibit significant uh, racial discrimination, but that the black participants in these studies do. And so, you know, people talk a lot about institutional discrimination and that idea of institutional discrimination is itself a lie, as we're going to talk about in a minute, but we're going to move into a society that has a lot of just everyday kind of immediate personal bias going on as we move into a society which is primarily comprised of non-white people, at least if the subcultures of those minorities continues to promote the kind of bias that it currently does. Now, I want to emphasize again that obviously murder is evil and you should treat people of all race and ethnic groups uh, decently. But, you know, that's true. But it is also true that ethnic diversity in an area um, turns it to shit, broadly speaking. That research has shown that the more diverse an area is, the more people in that area say they don't trust the people around them, the more likely the people in that area are to be suicidal, and the more likely that area is to have a high rate of crime. You look at schools, and it turns out that having lots of black students in a school predicts worse academic achievement for white students, and a higher suicide risk, uh, and a higher rate of being bullied. You can even look at uh, interracial marriages and the fact that they're much more likely than average to end in divorce. We can talk about politics and the profound effect that rich diversity has already had on our politics. The easiest snapshot of that is U.S. presidential elections, right? And this particular graph only goes up to 2012, but we all know how white people voted in 2016 and 2020 for Trump. So that from 1976 to 2020, in every election, the white voters on net voted for the Republicans, so that all the national power that the Democrats have had over the time period has been due to the existence of uh, growing non-white minorities in the country. Now, you may say, why do this right now? It seems like I'm justifying the actions of this killer. And so, you know, I want to make clear again. I mean, I hope that that kid, uh, as I understand New York laws, probably can't happen. But in an ideal world, that kid would be shot in the head. But it would be wrong to let his act not only cause the death of the people who he's shot and the suffering of those people's families and that community, but to, on top of that, let the left use this as an opportunity to continue to lie to people about all of these issues. And so in my own, you know, obviously very small way, this is me contributing to resisting that. And speaking of, you know, resisting lies that are a bit uncomfortable to talk about, the next one is probably one of the most uncomfortable to talk about. Oh, we're not going to go there. We're not going, we're not going to talk about the JQ. Come on, come on, Sean. Let's not go there. Overwhelmingly dominated by people who will either talk about it, not at all, right, in that kind of irresponsible way of just calling anyone a Nazi who talks about this, or people... Uh, who are Nazis talking about this, who say you know insane things about Jewish people. And, you know, when I talk about Jewish people having an influence on this country that moved it significantly to the left relative to what it would have been because of the representation in our elite class, the fact is, you know, I even have mixed feelings about that because there are some issues that I have conservative views on and there are some issues that I have liberal views on. But the problematic element of the left that is relevant to this discussion that we're having today uh, is the anti-white racial bias that the left exudes. Now, this is super obvious, right? Like, if you just listen to leftists talk about race, if you read the New York Times uh, consistently for a few months or something like this, like, it's very easy, it's kind of hard to miss that they don't, they just don't like white people. It's just, it's just, is what it is. Uh, but there's also been a lot of research done on this. Research finding that liberals are more willing to kill someone for the greater good if that person is a white-sounding name rather than a black-sounding one, that liberals think it is more plausible, that black people are genetically superior to white people uh, than vice versa, that hearing leftist rhetoric about racial privilege makes people feel less sympathy for poor white people. And if you just ask people how they feel about racial groups, white liberals are the only group that just say on net they prefer other groups to their own. And then obviously the other non-white groups do as well. And so what you have in the left is a bunch of people who, you know, white liberals and non-white normal people, uh, all of which prefer some group other than white people over white people. And so it is just true that on top of ethnic diversity 
having these negative effects in terms of the mental well-being and social cohesion of people in society, crime rates, school satisfaction, that sort of thing. But ethnic diversity, in the case of like Hispanic people and black people and how they voted and Jewish people and how they've influenced the elite circles of society, that diversity has empowered an ideology which furthers a racial animus uh, towards white people. And that's, again, that's just, there could be a million horrible mass shootings and that would still just be true. And as it is, you know, that could be true. And most people that know this stuff, right, do not ever do anything violent. Uh, in a part because you can live a deeply satisfying and fulfilling life in a society that has a lot of people that don't like you. Like that's just, it's, if, honestly, it's just not that hard to do. Like, you can have a good life even with bad political stuff going on. And if you don't feel like you can, then, you know, you should run from politics as fast as you can and try to forget everything you ever learned about it. Now, that said, there are a bunch of differences which the shooter, you know, talked about in his manifesto. Now, he didn't say much uh, particularly compelling about any of this. As we've reviewed, that kid was not uh, particularly bright, and he was only 18. I mean, who who has a, a strong understanding of any research literature when they're 18? Roughly no one. But then again, most people aren't so dumb as to feel, well, the kid's a bad apple. <laughs> let's, just, let's just put it that way. But even with him being, you know, a bad apple and saying dumb things and doing horrible things, you know, it's still just true that if you measure things like intelligence, behavioral propensities towards violence and antisocial personality, if you measure these things, and then add them to the normal things we control for when trying to measure... Okay, so that's uh, Sean Last uh, talking about uh, migration replacement and the Buffalo shooting. All right, uh, terrific article in the USA Today. What is gray rocking? Are you ready to do some gray rocking? How to set boundaries with the narcissist in your life. So ideally, if you've got a psychopath or a narcissist or someone with a severe personality disorder, you, you ban them from your life. But what if you can't ban someone like that from your life? What do you do? So not everyone can escape a toxic relationship, especially when it involves co-workers, in-laws, or a parent. So there's an alternative. If you can't ban someone from your life, it's called the gray rock method, also known as gray walling or gray rocking. So it means acting as disengaged and unresponsive as possible. So you can turn people up or down in your life. You can turn me up or down in your life. Okay, I will have a more intense para relationship with you if we talk every day on here. If I stream every day, if I up the intensity of my live streams, if I up the duration of my live streams, if I up the intimacy of my live streams, we will have a more intense you know, para relationship. And same thing in real life. You can turn people up in your life by seeing them more frequently, spending more time with them, being more intense with them, and sharing more, being more disclosive, being, being more intimate in what you talk about. So that's how you turn people up in your life. Then to turn people down in your life, because usually it's not a good idea to just ban someone from your life. So an alternative to just banning someone from your life is instead of seeing them in person, you just maybe talk to them on the phone. Instead of talking to them every week, you may just talk to them once a month. Instead of talking to them for 20 minutes, you may just talk to them for two minutes. Instead of having intense and intimate conversations, you just gray walk, gray walk, gray rock or gray wall, whatever you want to call it. So you make yourself as boring and non-reactive as possible to decrease the amount of provoking or emotional reaction. Because when somebody doesn't give the manipulator the responses they want, then they're no longer able to push their buttons. So it's a great communication technique dealing with sociopaths such as narcissists. So avoid eye contact. Maintain a flat tone in your communication. Respond with simple answers like yes, no, or I didn't know that. So visualize yourself as a gray rock. You are this. You are this. 
immovable, impenetrable force, right? These blokes can't penetrate you. You're saying no to penetration. If they ask you a question, say yes or no. Do not give details about your life. Do not admit that you're practicing this gray rock method. Right? So any kind of attention, even negative, is good for a narcissist, and they will take that over no attention at all. So the gray rock method works because it's the most minimal amount that you can possibly offer. They'll get bored and lose interest in manipulating you. Now, you can't always be a complete robot. So yellow rocking infuses a little bit more emotion into the communication. That goes beyond the flatness of gray rocking. So instead of just saying yes or no, you say, oh, wow, I didn't know. Thank you so much. Now, gray rocking tends to be effective in the long run. It do, may do more harm than good. And not everyone can stomach it. So the method can aggravate people more. They're not getting the reaction they're used to. They may feel their power slipping or their control over you waning. They might double down on the manipulation techniques they use to provoke a reaction out of you. So here's an acronym, DEEP, right? DEEP. Don't defend when dealing with sociopaths and narcissists. Don't defend. Don't engage. Don't explain. Don't personalize. Right? Remember the acronym DEEP, D-E-P. Don't defend, don't engage, don't explain, and don't personalize. All right, Dennis Prager wrote a good column today titled PolitiFact is to Fact What Pravda Was to Truth. So on a recent show, Dennis Prager said that once Elon Musk takes control of Twitter, Twitter will be flooded with hate. A lot of it will come from people on the left who want to show how hate-filled Twitter is. It's their race hoax industry. You see a noose on a college dorm of a black student. The odds are overwhelming that the noose was put there by a black student. If you see the N-word on a dormitory building, the odds are overwhelming that a black student did that. We are filled with race hoaxes. Well, one of the best-known self-proclaimed fact-checkers, PolitiFact, declared my claim false. Now, they offered no refutation of what I said. They provided no examples of nooses or N-words on campus perpetrated by white supremacists. Said they made a self-defeating argument. Experts who track hate crimes told PolitiFact that there isn't even a nationwide data source that Prager could have used to pin down the number of incidents, real or fake, that specifically involved hanging a noose or scrolling the racist insult on college buildings or grounds. So if there's no such database, how could PolitiFact declare what I said is false? Reminds me of the Columbia shuttle disaster. So there were engineers who after the takeoff said, we're afraid that uh, parts of the shuttle might be damaged because all this foam was falling at about 500 miles an hour, may have uh, damaged the, the shuttle. We would like to get pictures of the underside of the shuttle. And the NASA administrator said, no, because you're not going through the appropriate circles. So th there's a whole chapter on the Columbia disaster in the great book by Stephen Turner, The Politics of Expertise. So it's just like uh, PolitiFact here, right? Experts who track hate crimes say there isn't even a nationwide data source that Prager could have used to pin down the number of incidents, real or fake. So then they quote a man who devotes his professional life to lying about how racist America is, Brian Levin, director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University, San Bernardino. Mr. Prager is long on hyperbole and bigotry and short on facts, said Levin. What Prager claimed is a lie. Will lovable Luke get back into Bitcoin? 
No, I was whining about Bitcoin. What was it? Six months, eight months, a year ago? I, I dallied. I, I flirted with Bitcoin. All right. I was willing to flirt with Bitcoin. I was willing to buy $500 worth of Bitcoin. I took a $70 profit and got out of Bitcoin. But I always denied Bitcoin my essence. I'd flirt with it. I'd buy $500 of it. And Bitcoin loved me and the crypto enthusiasts loved me. But I always denied the crypto enthusiasts my essence. I was happy to talk to them. I was happy to talk about them. I was willing to make a quick $70, but I denied them my essence. So that PolitiFact cites Levin proves how unserious PolitiFact is about pursuing the truth. PolitiFact uses FBI statistics about all hate crimes, not about campus nooses or N-word graffiti. And if you look up uh, hate crimes on the FBI list, it lists hate crimes regarding gender, gender identity, disability, commerce violations, drug offenses, gambling offenses, many more examples of hate crimes that have nothing to do with racism, let alone racism on campus. So it's fraudulent and politifact to cite these FBI stats. So here are just some examples of race hoaxes concerning graffiti and nooses on campus over the last 15 years. 2007, Madonna Constantine, a black psychology education professor at Teachers College, Columbia University, claimed she found a noose at her door. Subsequent investigation revealed that she made it all up. Also turned out the racial controversy about a noose incident in Jenna, Louisiana, had nothing to do with a noose. 2013, Oberlin College shut down classes after a series of purported hate crimes. It was all a hoax. 2013 at Vassar, you had all this uh, N-word graffiti carried out by the left-wing leader of the school's official bias incident response team. 2013 at the University of Iowa, a black student claimed he was beaten up at a bar, prompting massive campus outrage. Police later determined the alleged victim was actually an active participant and even an instigator in the bar brawl. What he played with his Bitcoin in the bathtub. Well, I denied it my essence, bro. Why are phony hate crimes so common, especially on college campuses? 2014, University of Chicago student claimed his Facebook page was hacked and filled with racist, racist and violent messages against him. Turns out he faked the attack. He was a white leftist. 2015, a Muslim University of Texas student claimed she was stalked and threatened by an anti-Muslim man with a gun. She later confessed she made up the incident. 2015, University of Delaware students discovered three nooses near the hall where the Black Lives Matter group had protested the day before. It turned out the objects were remnants of paper lanterns left over from a previous event. 2015, a bag of poop was found on the doorstep of Vanderbilt University's Black Cultural Center. Was it put there due to racism? No, a blind female student walking a dog could not find a trash can to throw away the guide dog's excrement. 2015, at Keene University. The person behind the I will kill every black male and female at Keene University tweet and other similar ones was a black female activist and a former president of its Pan-African Student Union. And Prager goes on and on and on. There are like another 10 examples here. So Pointner... Owned, Pointner Institute owns PolitiFact. It's a left-wing organization funded in part by George Soros. The primary purpose of Pointner and PolitiFact is to malign conservatives. But the real punk in this story is Brian Levin. Let him provide an equal or greater number of true examples of N-word graffiti and nooses on campuses placed by white supremacists. If he doesn't, he is lying. So fired up Prager there. Pretty good column. There's... What's Tucker talking about aside from UFOs?
The world can't stop watching. Picture play out in a courtroom. Go inside the lives of the Hollywood stars and the shocking twists that led shocking. them to now. Who is Johnny Depp and who Americans is Amber Heard? Americans are more interested in this than they are in Fox Nation. Roe v. Wade abortion debate. So yesterday, the United States Senate voted to advance another $40 billion to Ukraine in a spending bill. Only 11 senators voted against this, all of them Republican. Now, no one knows exactly where that money is going, but we can be certain it's just the very beginning. Behind the scenes, leaders of both parties have agreed that, yes, we are at war with Russia, that we will prosecute that war until we, quote, win, though no one is willing to define what victory looks like, and that the United States government is prepared to spend up to $3 trillion to defeat Russia. Now, you didn't know this because no one is saying it publicly, but privately they are saying it. You have not been consulted. The public support for this is pretty much around zero. You can't afford to fill your car. There's no baby formula, but we're going to spend up to $3 trillion fighting Russia without a vote? I mean, who's excited about this? Of course, the people who are selling the weapons. And that would include retired four-star General Barry McCaffrey, another left-wing general who was for some reason taken seriously. He just tweeted this image of Ukrainian air defenses, quote, nailing Russian aircraft. <laughs> There's just one problem. <laughs> that image is not from Ukraine. It's from a video game called Arma 3. It's from a video game from Barry McCaffrey. And of course, Max Boone, who's a war expert, retweeted it. Oh, it's so exciting. It's literally a video game. And that's how they understand war, as a video game. But it's not just happening in Ukraine. We have now invaded Africa, too, because maybe that's what countries do when they can't fix any of their own problems. They just decide to fix the world's problems with guns. Joe Biden just authorized the military to deploy hundreds of special operators inside Somalia. Huh? Somalia? Biden is reviving that war after the last president withdrew our forces from Somalia. So what exactly is going on here? Joe Ken is one of the few people who's brave enough to say so. He's a former member of the Army Special Forces. He's running for Congress in Washington State. We're just going to say it out loud. We're hoping he wins. He joins us tonight. Joe Kent, good to see you. So for, first to the news, they have... Okay, thanks, Joe. Really glad that you stopped by the show. I wonder what's going on with Cotto Godfrey and Amy Wax. Well, it's going, uh, it's going in the direction you would expect it's going in. Uh, <laughs> just been, been deeply steeped in the, the, horrendous, uh, uh, the horrendous trends in academia and what's going on. Just, just this morning, uh, I got a barrage of emails from Harvard uh, where I got one of my degrees uh, and attended Harvard Law School and got an MD degree. Uh, about how they're launching this new $100 million initiative, anti-racism initiative, uh, an email from Bakel, the president, uh, pledging all of these make-work activities spearheaded by the mediocrities in the diversity, inclusion, and equity bureaucracy, uh, and then followed by one from the dean of the med school talking about all the money and time they're going to expend on these anti-racism, woke, uh, initiatives to repent for slavery, uh, to to mark the, the hideosity of white supremacy, uh, to explore and unpack uh, all of the horrible sins of our society. Uh, and then one from Harvard Law School uh, and the dean there, a guy named John Manning, someone I know I worked with uh, in the Reagan-Bush Justice Department, who back then was a solid sort of conservative, movement conservative. I really am tempted to sit down and write him a note. Hi, it's Amy. Remember me? I had the office next to you. Who snatched your brain? 
I mean, talk about a conversion experience. And the bladder in this email is really something to behold. Uh, so there's that. And then I talked to a guy named, uh, actually, I'm not going to name him because he's already under suspicion, someone who teaches at Drexel Business School, who's going to be writing a review for academic questions of one of the spate of new books that says we need to rethink free speech. We need to rethink free speech rights in light of our anti-racism initiatives, our diversity, inclusion, and equity pushes on campus. Um, one, It's a book by a guy named Paul Barube at Penn State and one of his colleagues who's in film <coughs> studies or something. I've, I've never heard of her. Uh, and that's, you know, it's not the only book that's going down this road. Um, but one of the things they propose, and this has actually been proposed at Drexel by a DIE committee, is to establish a tribunal uh, that will review everything that's written, said, taught, read, assigned, uh, all syllabi, all curricula, all courses on campus to make sure that they comport with this ideology. Uh, and frankly, I myself have been subjected to this. Mm -hmm. My dean uh, back in March and filed this 50 count set of charges indictment against me, every single one of which is just, you're expressing opinions we don't approve of. I mean, that's really what it boils down to. I've never been accused of discrimination or misconduct or malfeasance of any kind. But one of the items is that I dared to teach Enoch Powell in my conservative political and legal thought class. I dared to assign an interview with Enoch Powell and I dared to invite Jared Taylor of American Renaissance to talk to my students about the far right and the far right movement. And, you know, last time I checked, this was well within the subject matter of the course, mm -hmm. which everyone in the course, you know, volunteered to study. Oh, man, that's shocking. So I don't know about you, but I feel like my Nishama is still in lockdown. It's like, can I find a middle road? Isn't there a middle road before between like filling every crevice with your essence and you know, winking all over God's country and the gold country? Isn't there like a middle road between just wild, mad, crazy, out of control fornication and you know, living a solitary life, you know, filled with live streaming and, and, and reading books? Like where, where's the middle road here, guys? I mean, surely, surely there's, there's, there's some kind of alternative here. What's going on in Pennsylvania? What's going on? Hey, Brett. Hey, Tucker. Hey, Brett. It's interesting to watch the Senate race develop. It's it's early, very early. If you look at any of these numbers, these are early mail-in votes. So you see David McCormick uh, doing well early on. But we haven't even got to the same-day voters where you're going to see uh, the bulk of the vote in Pennsylvania come in. And that's where this thing will move. On the Democratic side, you see the lieutenant governor, Fer Fetterman, who's in the hospital, had a procedure for a, uh, a heart procedure, a pacemaker put in today, successful, we're told. He's running away with it over the moderate Connor Lamb. So it looks like he is going to win on the Democratic side for that Senate race. Huh. I mean, so, I mean, I, I can't remember a primary that's had more intensity. I mean, you cover this every day, unlike us. A lot of people are watching this carefully, fair to say? Fair to say. And I think this might go late. You know, these three candidates heading in were very tight. Right now, it looks like McCormick's up. But remember, all of that is early vote. I think as you look in different... Okay, here at Ford News headquarters, we're going to keep a close eye on that election. And I'll, I'll let you know when Ford University is ready to call Pennsylvania. 
So Ricardo says the most intellectually stimulating people I talk to come from live streaming. Yeah. Uh, I mean, my, my life, you know, largely resolves, revolves, resolves around people I, I primarily know online. In fact, there are all sorts of people who I primarily know online. And then I've met them in person a few times and it hasn't really added anything significant. I, I have the same sort of relationship with these people, even though, say, we may have met up in person three, four, five, six times. It's still you know, basically the life of the mind. I don't know about you. I love me some ideas. Well, we've got a beautiful poem here from Laponius, Maximus Meridius. Filthy, 40, hard and horny, wanking in the tub. When daddy came home, 40 thought he was alone and continued to wank and to rub. That is beautiful stuff, but I wasn't wanking in my father's bathtub. I was in my father's bathtub with a very curvaceous young Jewess of legal age, God forbid. And it was a Shabbos afternoon and, you know, I was too sick to, to go to shore. You know, I was just kind of weak with my, my chronic fatigue syndrome and we're just yucking it up in daddy's bathtub and I think I hear the crunchy sound of my mother driving home. And so I, you know, pad down the hallway naked. It's like, oh my God, it is my mother. And then I got like rushing back to the bathtub. Oh, you got to get out. You got to get out and, and, you know, get back into the guest room and I'll go into my room. And then there's the dreaded knock at the door a couple of minutes later. And, uh, my mother says, you know, wh why is there water going down the drain in your father's bathtub? And I, I made up a lie. It's like, oh, I, I needed to take a shower. And I said, you know, Diana could use, you know, the, the dad's uh, bathtub. And my mother told me, stay out of your father's room. So I wasn't, I would never wank in my father's bathtub. I mean, I know you think that I'm, you know, some kind of perverse bastard. But anyway, that's total old 40 behavior. Like I, I've completely you know, turned over a new rock. I, I'm living life on a much higher spiritual plane. I'm now, I'm now free from the, the vast sin of self-abuse going on nine years now. Nine years, no fap. I mean, do you want to shake my hand or what? Nine years, no fap. All right. So do you feel like your soul is in lockdown? All right. How to be adventurous again. It's time to restore excitement to your life without you know, going sexually wild. These steps will help. Elizabeth Bernstein writes in the Wall Street Journal about uh, this one woman who was tired of the stress and exhaustion of the pandemic. So Anna decided to do something to boost her state of mind. She signed up for a local might night. So everything felt so dim. She's a 35-year-old piano teacher. She planned to sing several songs she'd written, which she'd never performed in public. I needed something to make me feel alive. So what are you doing to feel alive? I mean... Maybe I'll go to a local mic night and sing Tie Me Kangaroo Down, mate, sport. Right? For the past two years, we've been buried in bad news. If we took a risk, it was mundane, going to work or the grocery store, talking to another human being in person. We spent so much cognitive energy trying to stay safe, keep up with the events that we had little left to pursue the types of big, frightening yet exciting adventures that might expand our lives. So I went on a big, exciting adventure to expand my life on Sunday afternoon, just spontaneously after my, my weekly FaceTime with my brother, I went down to Santa Monica Beach and I, I walked along the beach until I saw someone safe that I could leave my, my stuff with. 
when when I went uh, swimming. So I finally, you know, ran into this nice 74-year-old bloke and said, hey, will you keep an eye on my stuff? He said, yes. He said, I wouldn't go swimming out there. You, you're going to you get hypothermia. But 41 is something new and exciting in his life. So he went, you know, running into the ocean and went diving through the waves. And I had a wonderful time swimming for about 30 minutes. And then as I'm coming out of the ocean, as I'm walking along past the waves to the ocean shore, something bites me on the side of my foot. I mean, intense pain. So I just swim it off for a few minutes to see if it will go away. It doesn't go away. And then I, I, I walk I walk up to the beach and I look at my foot and it's bleeding. Like something had bitten me in the bloody ocean. So so the old bloke says, oh, go, go talk to the lifeguard. So I went over to the lifeguard and, and said, hey, I uh, feel like something bit me in the ocean. Is this something I need to be concerned with? I mean, 10 minutes later now, since, since the bite, and, and the pain is growing. And they said, oh, it's a stingray bite. Uh, just go home and soak your feet in hot water. So due to various complications, I don't get home for two hours. And I am, I am like biting my, my fingers. I'm like punching myself. I mean, the pain is so, I'm like, my, my face is all, all, you know, scrunched up. I, I mean, it was, the, it was the most intense pain that I've experienced in years. It, it took me two hours to get, to get home. But once I put my foot, once I put my foot in, in hot water, the pain started to go away. So, yeah, this is what it looked like. Wow. So I was just trying to, you know, get out there, expand my life, you know, maybe talk about the, the virtues of, of modesty with some bathing beauties and got bloody bit on the foot by a stingray. So I guess you're supposed to do the stingray shuffle. So instead of walking normally in the ocean, you should shuffle, keeping your feet on the ocean floor to send the stingrays a message that you're coming because they're not naturally aggressive. They only get aggressive when you step on them. And then when you swim, don't swim on the ocean floor, like stay, stay above it. But such an intense pain. So I, I soaked my feet for, in hot water for, for about two hours, kept replacing the, the hot water. And then my foot's still been swollen ever since. So I don't know, have you experienced? Yeah, KMG would have peed right on it, right? <laughs> yeah, I saw that in the movie. Oh, man. How meaningful is the NoFap declaration without knowing whether or not other outlets applied? Well, I'm a man of tremendous discretion. I'm very much an old-fashioned 19th century Victorian gentleman. So I I'm not the type of bloke who who likes to overshare. Like, words, words don't come easy to me. I I'm just really a music man. Melody is my best friend. How can I find a way to make you see I love you? I'm just a music man. Melodies are so far my best friend, but my words are coming out wrong. I reveal my heart to you and hope that you believe it's true because words don't come easy. This is just a simple song that I've made for you on my own. There's no hidden meaning, you know, when I say I love you, honey. Please believe I really do because words don't come easy to me. All right, so I was trying to get out there and expand my life, and I got bloody bit by a stingray, and then I didn't know how to express my pain. Like, I wanted to call someone. I wanted to get some sympathy, but I didn't want to come across as needy to the women I'm trying to make moves on. So 
So I just went passive aggressive with it and posted this photo on Facebook and said, I got bit by a stingray. And then I waited for the likes or reactions to come in. And, and that kind of, that, that solved my, my pain a little bit. But I mean, I couldn't think. I was like, I was like walking with my teeth clenched. I'm like punching myself. I'm like biting myself. But then once I soaked my feet in hot water, thank God the pain went away. And I sure hope the swelling, swelling goes away soon too. What the heck? All right, let's expand our lives. All right, now is the time to push ourselves outside our comfort zone. Adventures expand our world. Yeah, stepping on stingrays really expanded my world, allowing us to engage with ourselves and others in a new way. Remember, there's no true self. We only know who we are by engaging with others. So novelty, yeah, activates our dopamine system. Nothing like getting bit by a stingray to activate your dopamine system, which enhances our mood and positive outlook, makes us more creative, more motivated, better able to adjust to stress. New situations also front us to confront our fear. This boosts our mood by making us feel less stressed, less tired, and even euphoric. So adventures get us out of our patterns, help us show our own competence. We get to see that things will turn out well, or that we can cope if they don't. Well, it didn't turn out well. I wish I'd bloody stayed home and read a book. You don't have to free solo your 70s El Capitan to reap benefits. Any adventure, anything that you do to stretch yourself and learn something new counts. So the risks that you're up for might look different from the ones you took before the pandemic. Pick a manageable activity you can do soon, close to home. This will break the inertia, build your confidence, help you ramp up to bigger adventures. Taking gradual steps teaches your brain the experience is not as bad as you expected and that you can handle it. It shows you how you view anxiety. So people do better with karaoke, singing in public, speaking as excitement. They enjoy the experiences more than those who try to tamp down their anxiety. So turn the threat mindset into the opportunity mindset. Try talking to yourself out loud saying, I'm excited, let's get excited. Envision the worst case scenario. Then visualize the best case scenario. Now ask yourself which one will probably happen. I ne it never occurred to me I'd get bitten by a stingray. I've never been bitten by a stingray before. I don't know anyone who's been bitten by a stingray. You're more likely to feel happy after your hike or you're more likely to be carried off the mountain in a stretcher. This exercise puts fear in perspective. Write yourself a letter. Think of it as a pep talk. Start by addressing your trepidation. I know you're nervous. This is normal because you are leaving your comfort zone. And write about the skills you have that will help you succeed and past experiences where you took a risk and the experience went well. The point is to validate your feelings and remind yourself that even though you feel nervous, you can handle this. Tap into the regret of missing out. This can be very motivating. Think about whether you'll feel disappointed if you miss out on this interesting, expansive experience or if you'll feel glad you stayed home. Will you be proud that you proud you bit the bullet and took the adventure or proud that you didn't? We tend to regret actions we don't take rather than ones we do. The fear of missing out can help you. Relax about the outcome. Whatever happens, it should make a good story. Imagine how funny it will be to tell your friends about your adventure being bitten by the stingray. This will help you stop ruminating now. You'll feel more connected to others. People love stories of someone triumphing over adversity or dealing with awkwardness. Okay, so I, I fear my, my soul, my Jewish neshama is still somewhat in lockdown, but it's time to be adventurous again. It's time to restore excitement to my life, and uh, these steps will help. Great news. And sign up for 
and yet they don't want the people in my course, which is about conservative thought, reading about conservative thought. They they don't want them learning about conservative thought. This is, in my mind, you know, educational malpractice of the first order. It's bizarre beyond belief, but it is the beginning of a sort of committee on public safety type review that delves into the specifics of what you assign, what you teach. And in fact, in my rebuttal to these charges, I'm going to say, why don't you guys go a whole way and set up a ministry of truth and go through my syllabus line by line? You know, I don't want to be blindsided at some future time because I assigned something or taught something that doesn't meet with your approval. So I think you need to do a comprehensive review of my course. And while you're at it, every other course, you know, so this is actually my little capsule version of what is going on in academia today. And it's going on in more than one place. I'll tell you, it's, it's happening in many places. I could. Okay. So you want to be a famous content creator. A good uh, sub stack here. 10 survival tips by Jason Pagan. So 86% of young Americans dream of becoming an online content creator. First, answer this question. Why am I doing this? All right. If you just start out live streaming before you figure out why you want to do it, it's a recipe for misery, right? You can spend years pursuing live streaming and then you'll start complaining it's not paying the bills. Are you getting into it purely as a source of income? Or are you doing it for fun? Some people think it will be a stepping stone to a full-time career, but a decade later, there's still no roadmap for making this happen. So remember, becoming a content creator is going to cost you. In addition to the piece of yourself that you'll lose every time you hear your art referred to as content. So if you don't know why you're doing it, these costs are going to result in resentment down the line. So I do it because one, I'm good at it. Two, I like meeting people through it. Three, I like discussing ideas. Four, I like the, the mental, social, uh, technical challenge. Five, I was just born to do this. Uh, there's a reason so many creators you follow are secretly depressed or publicly depressed. Two, ask what will it cost me and am I willing to pay it? So cost isn't just about money, right? You will eat time and energy that you could have used for other things. So hundreds of hours that you sink into recording videos could have been spent earning cash at another job, making new friends, learning a new skill, lifting weights or petting a dog. Will also take a toll on your mental health and on your personal life that you're probably not yet anticipating. So you have to balance the goal versus the cost. You have to be honest about both. Am I actually having fun? Do I really find this relaxing and fulfilling? Well, I don't find this relaxing. I do find this fun and fulfilling. You'd be shocked at how many creative people are locked in a grind of making stuff that grants them neither money nor joy out of some vague obligation to their fans. Well, if you watch me very much, you know I don't do anything for the viewer. I do this. I do this for me. I don't grind stuff out for you. So plenty of people have been jerked around by jobs because some corporation or wealthy person funded a content making operation based on nothing more than we'll make fun stuff, figure out a strategy later, and then they get fired. Three, figure out what the audience will get from your creation. So I think that I have some unique experiences in life and I have some skills that aren't uh, widely shared. And so if you come to this show, you're going to get some insights and some perspectives that you won't get elsewhere. But content usually offers three elements, personality, information, and spectacle. And you usually need at least two of the three, right? 
personality information spectacle. Spectacle comes from explosions. Right. So if you want to engage an audience long term and keep coming back, you better have personality. Now, here's the tough part. If no one's watching and no one's listening, can you deal with the fact that you really don't have as much personality as you thought you did? So now going in, your audience will want a piece of your soul. Right? So two of the three elements can be replicated. Right? Information can be replicated. Spectacle can be replicated. Personality cannot be replicated. So if you stand out, it's because people specifically connect with you. Right? So when people reject your content, they're not just rejecting the premise or technical aspects of the presentation. They're rejecting you, the person. They're saying that you as a human being are not good enough, not interesting enough, not unique enough, not, not providing enough value for them. And that can be painful to take. So modern audiences aren't just looking for media to consume. Media is as plentiful as air. Modern audiences are looking for a relationship. And when you disappoint them, they will take it as a deep personal betrayal. I had my first really scary cyber stalker when I was just a little known blogger working two office jobs. I had fans show up at my house. I've got more death threats than I can count. No matter which medium you choose, your first publicity person will be you. The only way to promote your work is to open up your guts, let the audience probe around inside. And if they don't like what they see, don't take it personally. Yeah, so you'll be selling a piece of your soul to become a content creator. Interact with the audience and give them a chance to achieve status within the fandom. Jim Bowden, g'day, mate. Look, this young shrimp zoo YouTuber says Nick Fuentes is in the papers. He was inspired by the American AFPAC event, America First Live events. This takes a good batting practice. I'm afraid to go to the grocery store now. Welcome to the internet where the men are men and the women are too. Fine-tuned public speaking. I've met Luke in synagogue. I did a couple of pricey Alexander technique lessons with him over Hangouts. Luke was really challenging for me to connect with because of the space between our wicked lies. What do I think about Richard Spencer declaring 4chan should be banned? I discussed this on Sunday and Monday. I think that's uh, ridiculous. That uh, Richard's so desperate to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. He's always got to offer up a hot take and now it's, oh, we've got to take down all these websites. Know that sometimes you'll be used as a receptacle for strangers' rage. So this may be the most difficult part. But uh, <laughs> criticism conveyed by modern fans may well be elaborate descriptions of how they hope you and everyone you love is tortured to death. So there's a segment of the population that spends a ton of time online which induces a sense of numb helplessness. Outrage is often the most pleasurable and intense emotion they can experience. Makes them feel strong again. They've been trained by the internet to turn everything up to 11. They fear any lesser response will simply be ignored. And to be fair, they're right. So part of it is they perceive any attack on a creator as punching up or striking back at the powerful, even if the creator's power is having a YouTube channel with 76 subscribers. First time I got an email from someone vowing to knock me off my ivory pedestal. I was still making $8.25 an hour at a data entry job and driving a 12-year-old pickup truck that wouldn't shift into reverse. So the moment you have a platform, any platform, 
he'll become a sort of idol that some people will fantasize about toppling because the actual powers in society are untopplable and it feels good to have done something. Don't take it personally. Accept that you can't control what your audience gets from your work. Creating art is not like having a direct brain connection to other human beings. What you create and what other people perceive will be totally different, often in ways you find frustrating. Work you intend to be ironic or satirical will be taken at face value. Symbols will be misinterpreted. Jokes will fall flat. And the work that you put the most effort into will likely not be your most successful. Don't chase trends. Tip number eight. Get ready to deal with platforms that do not have your interests in mind. And number 10, remember that other creators are not your enemy. Talk about other incidents like what happened at St. Vincent College, at St. Olaf's College. It's, it's, it's everywhere. Uh, Paul, anything to say about what's been brought up? Well, you know, I have many things to say, but it'll probably take about 10 hours before I go <laughs> domino, you know, to my, uh, to my critique uh, of universities. Uh, yesterday, something very strange happened to me, which I think is sort of related to uh, problems that Amy has raised. Uh, there is a young man who uh, actually voted for Trump who attends, attends the college across the street from my house. And he walked by and he said, you know, we were trying to bring a, uh, a conservative speaker to campus. And he spoke to you know, several faculty members whom I was instrumental in hiring. And one of them, when she came here, was a conservative Republican. And uh, they, were, they were very um, uh, very critical of the idea. But then, you know, I said, did you mention me? Because I was the highest ranking professor. I live across the street. Uh, he says, no, we, um, uh, I've read your books and so did they. I, w I wouldn't dare mention you. So I said, you know, whom were you going to invite? Jonah Goldberg. That was one name that came up. Uh, <laughs> to the left, where the, the crazy left used to be. And Ben Shapiro, who <clears throat> sounds like a motor mouth to me. And uh, he says, and they were both rejected because they were too conservative. Uh, and I had just, I, you know, I, I, everything Amy says, I sort of know intellectually to be true. But when it sort of hits you, you know, you sort of stand there looking stupefied. And, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of hard to process this. Um, one of the things that bothers me is that what these people believe is crazier than Nazism, communism. It is the weirdest sort of ideology. Uh, the only thing you can say in their favor is they haven't released uh, too much violence so far. Although what they're doing to our cities, you know, uh, ob obviously is resulting in terrible violence. Um, it's, it's, but uh, the stuff they believe is absolute nonsense. And as Amy said, we have like a ministry of truth and the people keep getting canceled and, and so forth. Um, you know, and I hear this from family members and others. It makes no sense to me. Uh, well, I mean, it, it, it is a, a very wily and a, a very scary power play on the part of the left to take mm -hmm. over the opinion shaping institutions. And of course, their bastion of strength is the universities. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're not satisfied because they have to. I call it the three. Keys. OK, here's a video resisting temptation by a bloke named Luke Smith. So one very humorous and kind of pathetic thing that people say nowadays is if they're trying to cope with their behavior that is, they know is bad, or it's bad for other people, bad for themselves, if they're trying to cope or justify their own behavior, they will often talk of themselves as if they're not actually people. They will dehumanize themselves. They will say, oh, I'm sorry, it's not my fault. I'm, I'm not really a human. I'm actually a giant chemical reaction, and I, I can't control what I'm actually doing. That is one of the most, I don't know, it's pathetic. I don't know how exactly to react to it, but it's really common to see people nowadays who instead of owning up to their behavior, 
will start saying things. Oh, well, you know, I'm just uh, addicted to this, or I just have, you know, I just have problems with things like this, or you know, I just got, I got a dopamine addiction, or um, you know, I have mental health issues, and somehow like this excuses me. And uh, I, I just find it very funny. Now, last year or so, I forget when exactly, I did a video called Resisting Temptation. In fact, you might be able to call this video Resisting Temptation 2, Resisting Temptation Reloaded. I don't know. I'll think of some kind of name for it. But either way, um, I, I did that video ultimately on the fact that so many people will email me or ask me, oh, how, how do I quit this habit, yada, yada, yada. And I will always tell them. What Resisting temptation is not really the answer, right? Until you don't want to touch that burning hot stove your life is not going to work, right? So temporarily in, in a few situations, you may be able to resist temptation. But the reason I don't use porn anymore is because I re am repelled from it as though from a hot stove because I know it has a negative effect on me. So if you quit drinking or quit drugging or quit engaging in maladaptive behavior, in all likelihood, you're not fighting that temptation because we only have so much willpower and our willpower steadily drops as the day goes along. So we have less willpower at 3 p.m. than we had at 10 a.m. We have less willpower at 10 a.m. than we had at 7 a.m. So I, I don't really think in terms of resisting temptation. I think in terms of placing yourself in situations where you're less likely to get into trouble. So, you know, I don't hang out with people who want to talk about porn. I don't hang out with people who have conversations that are going to have a negative effect on me. I don't uh, put myself in positions to, you know, start, you know, banging some, you know, trampy, tattered up, you know, alcoholic chick. So wise people put themselves in situations that bring out the best in them. And then once you start internalizing a healthy way of life, you can go anywhere if you have a good reason to be there. And that means there are going to be a lot of places that you don't go. But, uh, you know, fighting temptation, not really a winning formula. So if you need to lose weight, uh, fighting temptation to eat this or that is not going to carry you through. If you're excited, however, about improving your health, if you're excited about looking better, if you're excited about you know, a new you, then your excitement will help you overcome temptation. Okay, we've got a caller. Wow, Elliot Blatt, what's up? Uh, what's up, bro? Can you hear me? I can, bro. What's going on? I'm driving. I'm on my way to my sensory deprivation tank, bro. Beautiful. Yeah. So I'm two weeks in. I haven't missed a day. Excellent. How's it going? It's like daily ritual, you know? Following through on my commitments. That's admirable. And uh, you're achieving some peak uh, spiritual insights, or are you still primarily thinking about the Kentucky Derby? Uh, Kentucky Derby's over. That was, uh, was a disaster. Uh, it was like a, yeah, it's a separate story unto itself. But, uh, yeah, that was, uh, did you hear about it? Yes. 80 amazing. to 1 shot. Amazing. I mean, that horse just ran an amazing race. That finish was incredible. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, you know, this is like, I really burnt my brain, like, consulting all kinds of YouTubers and trying to put together the perfect bet. And uh, that horse just tore everything up. It was really quite, quite a, you might never see something like that in your lifetime. It was that rare of an event. Yeah, it was absolutely incredible. Did you lose money? Yeah, I lost 50 bucks. Hmm. I didn't get, I had a very, yeah, if, 
Yeah. Um, if my bet, which three quarters of it did come in, if the whole thing had come in, I, I would have made like two grand on 50 bucks. So it would have been a shrewd move. But uh, it was not to be. So, uh, yeah, so this, uh, this uh, I got to give you the update on the old sensory deprivation tank. Yep. So uh, it's, uh, it's more about, like, um, relaxing your body at a really deep level, you know? Um, and I'm making progress in that, in that, uh, in that regard. And uh, I don't know if I'm ready to recommend it yet, you know. I mean, it's definitely not worth 100 bucks a session, but it's definitely worth, like, 25 bucks a session. Um, like, I'm able to, like, move my – I'm loosening up a lot of ancient tension in my shoulders, kind of like the Alexander technique. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you you inclined to try this, or you've got what you need? Uh, possibly. Yeah. Um. I mean, I think so, I'd rather get bit by a stingray. Yeah, no, that, so that was quite an unfortunate turn. Um, how rare is that? I've never even heard of that. Well, sometimes, like on some beaches, apparently in Southern California, you'll have 15, 20 people come report to the lifeguard that they've been bitten, but uh seems to be fairly rare. But my God, I don't think I'm ever going to forget it. I was just incapacitated by pain for for two hours. Um, it was like a throbbing kind of pain. It was just it was just overwhelming. I I I couldn't even I couldn't even decipher what kind of pain. It was just like just imagine you had excruciating pain in your foot. Like the foot tends to be very tender. Like you know yeah. they didn't they didn't. They didn't attack, you know, a very hard part of myself where I just sort of like shrugged it off. Yeah. Uh, is that going to keep you out of the water? No, but I'm going to do the stingray shuffle from now on. <laughs> okay. Uh, I stepped on a crab once. That was just a bit of a, share, a scare, but there was no biting involved. Uh, a stingray sounds fearsome. It sounds, um, you know, prehistoric. But I, I'm interested in yeah. your sensory deprivation tank. So seriously, what are the other, uh, what are the other life results that you're getting from this? D- does the experience carry over aside from, you know, less tension in your muscles? What what else is carrying over? Well, it's um, it's also like an hour a day where you're just in your thoughts and you can like parse through your thoughts clearly and. Um, you know, it's so I've made a lot better decisions, right? I've uh, I've sort of did some problem solving and uh, it's sort of like paths not taken. So I've uh, uh, the mental benefits are also very good, but they're not these sort of transcendental experiences that the uh, that the advocates sort of promise right they'll talk about like you know talking to your long lost you know your dear departed ancestors and stuff like that none of that has happened for me but uh it's one thing to you know it's like not only are you sort of addressing any physical issues you also just addressing your mind and 
taking care of your mind. So uh, I consider that a win. What do you find yourself thinking about most often? Um, you know, it's usually about work, sadly. Um, you know, my workload, problems I have to solve, things that need to be fixed, that kind of stuff. <laughs> no, I, uh, but, you know, I, but I'm, I'm, the thing is, it's like I try not to think about anything, and these are the things that come to the fore, you know, just like uh, any meditation type of thing. Your thoughts sort of have a life of their own, and they're not directly under your control. You may think they are, but they're not. Because if you, they were, you could just stop thinking about certain things. So have you, you met anyone in the isolation tank? <laughs> no, bro. It's, uh, I, get the, I get the yellow rock treatment at the, uh, from the tattooed receptionist every day. You know? <laughs> just, she's, just as, she's just as helpful as her job requires her to be, but she's basically playing a tape. Every, you know, they they have a protocol they have to say. They have to, they have to say a certain few things when you um, when you arrive, and then a certain few things when you leave. And they're the same every day. You can tell she just like memorized the employee manual. <laughs> Is that because you've been weeing in the? Have you been peeing in the isolation tank? <laughs> no, but I, it's like uh, I did have to restrain myself. And, like, you know, all your smooth muscles do want to relax when you're in there. So it's not, a, it's not as easy as it sounds. Not to, but then you have to think about, like, who's been there before you, and did they show the same restraint? Uh, do, they, do they practice, you know, good sanitary practices at this spa? Yeah, yeah. So all the water is changed out, theoretically, between people, um, or it's filtered at the very least. But it's, it's, it's exactly at body temperature. It's sort of like it just feels like you're in urine. Like if you let your mind go there, the temperature of the water is like uh, basically like urine. So uh, and uh, it's, <clears throat> it's, 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 it's salt water, but it's not sodium chloride. It's calcium sulfate. So all of this salt sort of uh, evaporates on your skin so towards the end of it you get like this salty crust all over your skin um so i just try to imagine that that all the impurities are being sucked out of my body and i'm being born anew through this process and and how much for a month of this 500 big ones luke okay well you're definitely getting bang for your buck right you're going every day oh yeah 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 I, you know i did the math and it's like it's like it's you know it's um, it's it's like eighteen dollars per yeah. session. Yeah, I remember I so, si signed up for unlimited yoga for a year for a thousand dollars, and I the first year I went uh, two hundred and ten times. Second year I went one hundred and ten times. Yeah. Well, you know, it is that motivation though that well, like I, I just want to see if I can do thirty consecutive days and then have uh, an objective. Uh, basis to evaluate the experience from. So, but so far, I think it's been positive because, at the very least, it gets me out of the house every day. Why not visit the Holy Land and go for a dip in the Dead Sea? I uh, considered it, bro, but uh, it's like um, I've always had this image of Israel being uh, just completely strewn with violence all of the time. You know. 
So I, I, it's it's hard to it, it's one of those things that the media kind of distorts your perception because the only time Israel would ever make the news is when a bus was blown up, you know. So I know it's a weird hang-up, but that's always been the thing that's prevented me from uh, going to Israel, even as a tourist. I'm thinking that, that I know it's neurotic. Yeah, I'm thinking that that winner of the Kentucky Derby, he didn't he didn't stay in his lane. No, he changed lanes very, uh, very adroitly. <laughs> that was that was the only time you're not supposed to stay in your lane. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, so I've been studying like horse. I've been I've been I've been into the stock market lately. I've been trying to understand the stock market. And um, have you been losing money or making money? I haven't. I haven't made a bet because I, I. Uh, I made a big bet in like 2015. I got creamed, so I'm pretty gun shy. But I want to go back. You know, I think I'm ready to like dip my toes back in the water. Um, you know, I'm out for uh, redemption. But it's a much trickier game than I imagined. It was a much. Um, there's always a problem of thinking you know something. You know, when you don't. Yeah. Like they say, though, the worst stock market investors are dentists because uh, dentists, you know, it's a skilled trade. They feel like they're smart or doctors, too. They feel like they know everything. And so they think they're the smartest guy in the room and they make a lot of bad bets uh, uh, owing to their hubris. What things do you find most tempting these days? Is it pornography? Is it uh unhealthy amounts of food? Is it unhealthy food? Like what, what temptations do you, do you have to struggle with? Um, probably alcohol and gambling. <laughs> food. I think I've got a pretty, pretty well sorted as they say. Uh, I, I, I eat pretty well. I cook uh, changing lanes. Uh, yeah, I cook my own food for the most part. Uh, avoid restaurants, so no. But uh, yeah, I do like a drink, and I do like uh, I do like a good bet. <laughs> Stay in your lane, Elliot. Don't change lanes, bro. Uh, I'm changing because I got to make a left. Okay, uh, well, just this once. All right. So anyway, um, I didn't have too much. I just figured I need to fill in the gaps on the old flotation tank. Blessings, Elliot. <laughs> all right. Shalom. All right. Shalom. I'll talk to you. Right, Take bye. care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care. See you later. Penalize, punish, and purge anything <laughs> resembling uh, right-of-center thought. And it's not just, you know, solidly reactionary stuff, the good stuff, uh, but the the moderate stuff, the, the Ben Shapiro's, uh, the... Uh, the conservative stuff, the Jonah Goldbergs, I mean, the, the rhinos uh, are also under suspicion. Right. Um, and, and, you know, why not? Because they have so much power. Uh, why not exercise it? And, you know, the nasty, the really nasty thing about it, I mean, there are many nasty and very scary and... and well, you want to know about a nasty thing? We once brought home this non-Seventh-day Adventist woman and we shared with her a real Seventh-day Adventist meal. And it was vegetarian liver heavy. And, and this is my dad. Like, oh, this is your real Seventh-day Adventist chopped liver, Anne. Have you ever had real Seventh-day Adventist chopped liver before? Well, 
my wife makes the real thing. You can bet your life on that here. You eat it with a piece of bread. This is real Adventist rye bread with seeds. That's it, Anne. You're doing very good. Ain't she doing good? That's it. Take a nice piece of real Adventist rye. Now take a big forkful of the real Adventist vegetarian chopped liver. And on and on, right down to the jello. That's right, Anne. Well, jello is kosher. Sure, of course it has to be. Oh, no, no, no. No cream in your coffee? Not after. No, ha. Hear what Anne wants, man. So. So I once caught an apple, right? And I saw, to my astonishment, what it looked like. And then I just like ran off into the woods to fall upon the orifice of this fruit, just pretending that the cool and meaty hole was actually between the legs of that mythical being who had always called me Big Boy when she pleaded for what no girl in all recorded history had ever had. Oh, shove it in me, Big Boy, cried the core apple that I banged silly on that picnic. Big Boy, Big Boy, oh, give me all you got, begged the empty milk bottle that I kept hidden in our storage bin in the basement to drive wild after school with my Vaseline upright. Come, big boy, come, screamed the maddened piece of liver that in my own insanity I bought one afternoon at a Seventh-day Adventist butcher shop and, believe it or not, violated behind a billboard on the way <laughs> to a bar mitzvah lesson. Yes, I fucked my own family's dinner. Some highlights from Portnoy's Complaint by Philip Roth. Ominous, I would call him aspects to it, but the one that disturbs me the most is that it keeps a whole generation of students in abject ignorance. I Bones Model says, uh, Richard Spencer talks about his shortcomings in leading the alt-right. I played that clip Sunday and Monday, bro. Played it Sunday and Monday. What are you talking about? Like, this is something that is directly within your moral control, right? Uh, and I gave people some advice for, you know, how to resist temptation, you know, how, you know, separate yourselves uh, from a position of temptation and things like that. Um, but, you know, a lot of people, it's... Yeah, the best way to resist temptation is to separate yourself from situations that uh, lead to it. Almost like the default the worldview nowadays, that people refuse to be responsible. Like, the idea of being responsible for your own actions and owning them is so alien to people that they will speak as if, the, like, their behavior happens to... Yeah, so I had over 100 live viewers yesterday. I was, like, getting the old mojo back, right? So I'm giving my best side now, getting getting motivation again. Absolutely, I find it really hard to live stream before five people. And I find it a lot easier to live stream before 50 or 100, 200, 300. My, my performance just goes up the more viewers I have. Now, I wish I was more spiritually developed. I talked about this with Amy Chapman, my, my voice coach, my performance coach, about how, you know, ideally I should give the, the same level of performance no matter, you know, how many people are viewing. That's what the real pros do. But... I don't find that. And, you know, I can't believe how many people won't come on my show now because of what I did to Andy Nowicki. I mean, Andy Nowicki has a lot of love out there. And ever since I had that unsuccessful interview with Andy Nowicki, was it about a year ago? Like all sorts of people just won't go on my show. I, I did not realize the extent of Andy Nowicki's influence. Did not did not recognize the intensity of his fan base. I did not recognize the commitment of his friends. So I'm just trudging on alone, right? It's like you go to a party and hardly anyone shows up, and that's what it could be in this chat sometimes, right? Five, 10, 15 people, as opposed to, you know, yesterday I played some Tucker Carlson, over 100 live viewers. 
Like we had a rockin' party. To them, as if they don't choose their behavior. You know, com common examples that people will get me, you know, ask me about is, I don't know, like minor drug addictions or, or pornography or like all these kind of things. Like none of them, I mean, pornography, just to, as, to use that as, a, an, as an example, pornography is just not an addiction in any way, shape, or form, okay? If you're addicted to some kind of uh, chemical, right, if you're chemically dependent on something, if you don't have it, you will, you might start dehydrating and convulsing and you need severe. Okay, so just because you can find some differences between, say, chemical addiction and process addiction doesn't mean that there aren't also similarities. So the, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous speaks to me, even though I've never had a problem with alcohol. So many people, such as myself, I would say hundreds of thousands of people have found benefit from applying the template of process addiction. Now, that uh, Luke Smith doesn't believe in process addiction, uh, who cares, right? To me, it just comes down to whether or not you get benefit from, from that approach. We don't know very much about process addiction and substance addiction, right? We, we know a little bit, but I'm sure he's going to go all scientific here about how Chemical addiction is real and process addiction, not real. Veer medical care, okay, you, you'll, you'll need a lot of what, you've got to put in an IV, you got to take care of this person as they recover from their addiction. Pornography ain't an addiction in any way. I mean, people describe it as that, like colloquially, but it's not, I mean, it's just a habit that people are get used to doing. They, they just repeatedly do it and, oh, it feels good. Okay, so this isn't something that's bothered him, right? So therefore, he has zero empathy, and that tends to be the human condition. You've not been troubled by something. Uh, you're not going to show much empathy for people who have been. But I'm going to keep doing it. And then people who refuse to take moral agency will use this this line of addiction as a kind of a cope. And here's how you know that it's not. Uh, people who refuse to take moral agency, there's nothing uh, cope or refusing to take moral agency when you recognize that you have addictive tendencies. It means that it is imperative that you take the steps to stay sober so that you stay out of situations where you're likely to make bad choices not an addiction okay here's how we know that pornography and cooming is not an addiction because we can take you we will put we can put you in a room in a chair in the middle of nowhere okay with a bunch of people watching you and you will not spontaneously touch yourself you will not do that in front of other people that doesn't prove it's not an addiction i mean that's ridiculous uh you can take alcoholics and put them in certain situations and they won't drink uh big deal because you do have that moral control to resist that and you you have that at any time um but you know it, and if you don't consume pornography, you don't start, oh, I, I'm... People only have so much moral control, right? People basically behave like those they hang around, right? You choose your situation, you choose your community, then you're going to behave according to that. Foaming from the mouth, I, oh, I need my addiction, I need my fix. That doesn't happen. It's fake. That, that's not a thing. Um, so people have used this line of addiction or the idea of, oh, you know, I'm, I'm like this dopamine robot. That I... All right, people who say that they're addicted to porn don't talk anything like what he's talking about. So Luke Smith argues like Ken Brown, aka Deep Left Joker. He makes up straw men, right? P people who suffer from love addiction or porn addiction don't have anything like the experience he, he describes. So he's deriding something that doesn't really exist. You know, and I have to do these behaviors as a cope for them really being weak-willed and probably not even being weak-willed. What I said in the last video. Okay, so Luke Smith, where are you weak-willed, right? Like, be the big man. Where are you weak-willed? Because no one's strong-willed in everything. Right? No one's strong everywhere. No one's brave everywhere. No one's righteous everywhere. There are plenty of situations where you are weak-willed and cowardly and dishonest and sniveling and reprehensible. 
right? There's no man who is immune from situation, right? The situation's the boss. Luke Smith thinks he's the boss. Situation's the boss. It was this. A lot of people will try to play both sides. They will try to get fleeting enjoyment from things that they know are bad and things that they know will hurt them or things that they know will hurt other people. They will try to get those enjoyments. And then they still want to seem morally superior. So they will say, oh. Yes. Yes, people will. People try to maximize their pleasure. People try to maximize their status. People try to maximize their power. People try to maximize themselves in relationship to other people. Right? People tend to think of themselves as the center of the world, right? And then people look for all these different ways. If I just take on this perspective, oh, yeah, I really am superior to everyone else. Yeah, that is the state of nature. Oh, well, you know, I do these things. Oh, but oh, I, I wish I could stop. To, oh, they're just so bad. You know, I, I try so hard to like. Yeah, Luke Smith, so what do you do that you wish you don't do? Right? So most days I go through the entire day without doing anything that I wish I didn't do. But there are some days that I eat too much. There are some days I don't wind down properly at night and then I don't sleep well. There are some nights I don't leave my CPAP machine on. I just get annoyed with it, take it off, and then I wake up with a headache because of sleep apnea. There are times when I don't approach people socially or engage socially when I should. There are times when I, I get into ruts and I lead a much smaller life than, than is good for me. Now, what do you struggle with, Luke Smith? Right? Do you choose to display any vulnerability or are you just the, the way of the superior man? Like, not do this, but I just can't help myself. Oh, my goodness. That, that whole justification, which you didn't see people, people in the past making. This is a very modern, this is like a 20th, 21st century. Yeah, guess what? People speak differently in 2022 than they spoke in 2016. As opposed to 2006, 1919, 1850. Wow, Luke Smith is waking up to realize that the justifications that people use differ over time, over culture. Who would have thought? Shocking revelation. Century cope, right? There can only be possible in a world of... We all cope. You are coping like mad. I, I don't know you. I've never heard of you before. There are all sorts of ways that you cope. We all cope by thinking we're the center of the universe, right? We all tend to have a vastly exaggerated sense of our own wisdom. We all tend to think we're right when we get into conflicts with other people. We all tend to not see the weaknesses in our own arguments, right? Uh, there's nothing wrong with coping. What's important is the cope, good for you or bad for you. Okay, believing that God loves you Let's say that that's not uh, empirically validated, right? It's a non-rational belief. Most people benefit from believing that God loves them. Uh, most people b benefit from believing they're the center of the universe. Uh, most people believe, benefit from believing that they are right where they should be, doing exactly what they should be doing right now. Uh, most people benefit from believing that the work they do is important. Right? Most men... Uh, take on you know, a vastly exaggerated perspective of the importance of their work. Or live streamers take on a vastly exaggerated perspective on the importance of their live streaming. Now, I can sit there thinking, wow, I've got 15 live viewers. I'm having such a profound effect on, on the lives of these 15 men. And then once this video is, is just uploaded, you know, 200 more people are going to watch this video and it's just going to, you know, turn their 
lives right round, right? That'd be a vastly exaggerated sense of my own importance. It's possible that uh, 1% of my audience may find some fleeting moments of this video of significance to them. And then other members of my audience get you know, varying degrees of entertainment value or informational value from segments of the show. And that's about it. That's it. I do a show. A few people get some moderate to significant benefit from it. And uh, a few dozen people get some entertainment and some information from it. And that's it. If I didn't stream tonight, right, not many lives would be ruined, right? People's lives would go on largely as is. You know, maybe three people would experience, you know, a loss if uh, this show had never happened. Of, you know, neuroscience and, and psychiatry, they have given us this new verbiage to talk about human behavior as if it's not you making a decision, but, oh, well, we, d we can describe it in chemical terms. Therefore, it's the chemicals. Just because you can describe something in chemical terms doesn't mean you can't also describe it in terms of making a decision, which doesn't mean that you can't describe it in other terms, right? You know, victory over sin or falling in prey to the devil, right? You can, you can describe things 25 different ways, right? Just because you choose one way to describe things doesn't mean that you believe the other 24 are invalid. It's not you. In fact, you don't actually exist. So you can't be responsible, responsible for anything. You're just some passive observer to this robot that you live in. I don't know anyone who truly believes that they don't exist. Anyone who believes they don't exist, may I punch you? Because as soon as I punch you, you know that you exist. So again, this guy is just taking on uh, straw men because that makes him, that's his cope, right? He feels like he's dripping wisdom, that he is this big, bold, important thinker because he's able to demolish straw men, right? To me, demolishing straw men, that doesn't give me any satisfaction. But his cope is that he thinks he's doing something important by demolishing people that don't exist. He's a lot like uh, Ken Brown, aka Deep Left Jerkle. Like that, that is the, the vision of the world that they're putting out there. And a lot of people will fall for it, not because they really fall for it, not because they actually believe it, but because- People don't fall for it, right? People live lives around family, friends, community, maximizing pleasure, maximizing a sense of uh, self-importance. And then they, quote unquote, fall for ideas, beliefs that serve them, that maximize their happiness, feelings of pleasure and power, right? And then they discard these beliefs if, if better beliefs come along, right? People did not evolve to be gullible, right? This guy believes that we evolved to be gullible, but if we evolved to be gullible, we wouldn't be here. We would have died out already, right? That we're still here, that we're still dominating this earth proves we did not evolve to be anything like the straw man that Luke Smith presents. It is so convenient because it gives people this moral out. They can say, oh, well, I'm not responsible for the things I'm doing. Like, Yeah, you're indulging in a moral out right now. You are demolishing straw men. You could be taking on steel men, right? You could take the best versions of your opponent's arguments and go up against those. But no, you're not strong enough to do that. You're not confident enough to do that. Maybe you simply don't have the ability. Maybe you just don't have the brains. You don't have the courage. You just want to take the easy way out of destroying people who don't exist. That's your cope.
I'm going to get on here and I'm going to rant about people who don't exist, who are completely unrecognizable by anyone. And I am going to prove myself superior to people who don't exist. It doesn't take a lot of hard work. It doesn't take brilliance. doesn't take moral fortitude. doesn't take wisdom to demolish people who don't exist. Right, this guy is the equivalent of a five-year-old who feels great that he demolished a toy soldier. Right, this guy, I guess he makes a lot of videos where he does the equivalent of uh, demolishing toy soldiers and feels really proud about it. No big deal. So I, I, I can have this duplicity where I'm enjoying things that I know are bad um, and I can still pretend like I... And uh, what things do you enjoy, Luke, that you know are bad? Right, sometimes I enjoy talking when I know I should shut up. Sometimes I enjoy opining when I know I should shut up. Sometimes I enjoy eating when I know I should stop eating. Sometimes I enjoy staying home when I know I should go out. Sometimes I enjoy lying down listening to a podcast when I know I should go to Shawl and Dovin. So what things do you do that you know are not best for you? Or are you just so superior that you're beyond that? I know that they're bad, right? Um, so that is absurd. And, you know, the, the, the shame is we don't, like, we do call some people on this. Like, children will do this 100% of the time. Children will always confabulate reasons why they want the cookie and they have to have the cookie and they have to do this and they have to do this, that, or the other. But for whatever reason, um, some adults, quote-unquote adults, kidults, right, can get away with this kind of behavior. And people don't call them on it immediately because there's this entire edit. Oh, so what would happen if you went through life calling people on their self-serving BS? Right, number one, people would not appreciate it. You would alienate yourself from those around you. You would become a pariah. And you usually would be doing more harm than good. Right? What does the book of uh, Mishlei Proverbs say? Repro never reprove a fool, for he will hate you. But if you reprove a wise man, he will love you for it. So I'm pretty selective in, in my real life, uh, people who I reprove. Because I know most people won't appreciate it and won't do them any good. So I try to ask before I go around reproving people. Is this true? Will this help? Will this be of benefit? Am I the right person to say this? Is now the right time to say it? That's what wise people ask. Am I the one to say this? Is this the time? Is this true? Is this helpful? Is this good? Edifice of, you know, pseudo-psychiatry and psychology that justifies it to people. It makes it sound intellectual to just, you know, do whatever you want, okay? And it's, it's totally silly. Um, now, I do want to add something else. Um, in that last video on resisting temptation, I did give people some advice. You know, although you do have ultimate moral authority over the things you do, there are some heuristics, there are some rules of thumb you can take to make making those decisions easier. You do have ultimate moral authority. Guess what? There are all, all sorts of situations where you don't have ultimate moral authority. Right? Even Luke Smith, even 40, even you will find yourself in situations where you don't have ultimate moral authority. Right? We have some influence over the situations we get into, and we can make some choices to optimize situations that bring out the best in us. But this notion that we can just walk around, you know, building our moral character and have ultimate moral authority is delusional. We don't have a moral character. Because who we are differs depending on the situation. There is no Luke Smith, you know, one essential Luke Smith. Luke Smith is different in different situations. Right? How he's speaking now is not how he speaks in 57 different other situations in his life. 
the type of person that he's presenting himself as right now, right? He's completely different in other situations. There's nothing essential about him that shines through in all situations in life. Okay, because, you know, things that you have as a habit, they are a little more difficult to overcome. I mean, you can still easily overcome them, right? It's, it's an issue of will. Um, but you can... No, you can't overcome everything, right? It's an issue of will. Like, who, who is this guy? Forty, do you have a selfie stick? Yes, I do. And I, I bought a new one when I came back from Australia because I can put my... I can plug in my iPhone. I can plug in my iPhone... I take off the 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 protector here I can I can plug in my iPhone with this sure mic get really good quality sound and have it on a selfie stick at the same time but I don't like get going out and and you know walking down the street orating to my iPhone because I think it's antisocial so I'm fairly selective when I do it and uh, I haven't done it for a while but when I do do it I'm going to be able to do it with a high-quality Shure mic and a selfie stick that will balance with my iPhone. Easily uh, make things better by separating yourselves from the temptation, right? One thing that I didn't really pound on in that in that video, but I want to talk about now, is, uh, you know, there's something I omitted, and it's actually yet another biblical recommendation, right? So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes this passing remark. People will often, often uh, quote, quote it, but he'll say, okay, well, you know that adultery is bad, okay? But... If you look at a woman with the intent of possibly committing adultery with her, that's basically just as bad. Okay. Now he doesn't. Yeah, big uh, Jewish Christian difference here. Stannis Prager notes in Judaism, you can commit adultery with only one organ of your body and it's not your heart. Go into big detail about why that is, but l let's think about this. What I see a lot of the times is, I mean, to use the example of pornography again. Okay. A lot of guys will say, oh, I don't want to watch pornography. And here's what their brains will do. Their brains, uh, well, now I'm talking about it in third person, but you know what I mean. In, they think they're very smart. They will think things like this. Ah, see, I don't want to watch pornography, but, you know, maybe I'll just, oh, I, you know, I have sexual needs. Maybe I just need some stimulation. It's natural. Oh, I need this. So Laponius says, I'm not a fan of selfie streams. Why not, Laponius? What do you have against selfie streams? Right, selfie streams can be awesome. So I'll just look at, uh, you know, pictures of girls in bikinis or something like that, right? You know, oh, I, I, I'm addicted. I, I, I can't quit told cold turkey because that's hard, quote unquote, because a scientist told me that, which is nonsense. Um, but oh, so I'll, I'll go like, instead of doing the whole thing, I'll go 90% of the way there. And when you're doing that, you have more or less already consented to do it, right? So that, that's Jesus's point. Like if you're, if you're tempted by sexual temptation. Okay. I think uh, that's that's about all I can take from this bloke. And I think that's about all I can take from listening to my own voice. Oh, man. Mickey Cows. I got to play a segment from Mickey Cows. Hang on. I mean, abject ignorance. They uh, from, from the moment they enter preschool, right, they are protected and distanced from anything uh, that might resemble a conservative idea. Mm -hmm. uh, they go to the most expensive colleges on earth. The fanciest schools uh, you can imagine. They come out and they know absolutely nothing about so much of what people have thought and done. Uh, and that is. From okay, this is an amazing moment in the latest Mickey Cows Robert Wright. Jerusalem, video. now. Oh, there's more stuff than that in the Bible, believe me. I know. You could have done worse. <laughs> there's a. Uh, so, let me. And, uh, crowding out. Well, maybe there's a way they've, they've amended the regulations to, to tell mothers that they can seek alternatives to baby formula with their WIC benefits. They don't have to just, buy, I, I don't know what the alternatives are. Mm. Uh, uh, and 
since I know little about lactation and its substitutes. Because I was but thinking I mean, maybe a child tax credit could alleviate the problem and you'd be in favor of that. No, right? that would just no. increase inflation and the over, increase the pressure on the limited supply. But I mainly meant this as a metaphor, Bob. Oh. Uh, I, I, I attended a friend's bat mitzvah mm-hmm. and she had that's this horrible. girl. Okay. That's right. her girl. She had yeah. this horrible Torah portion. You know, you get a side of Torah portion. She had a horrible one, which which is about decorating the temple in Jerusalem. And how oh, there's worse stuff do, than that in the Bible, believe me. I know. She could have done worse. <laughs> there's a... Uh, and you know, it has to have this filigree and that filigree. And she she did a very good rap about how, it, you know, aesthetics were important and blah, 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 blah. And then the fucking rabbi intervened and said, may I suggest that this passage is a metaphor for the building of the church? Bullshit. It's not a metaphor. They're talking about building the temple and what decorations it should have. Not everything is a fucking metaphor. But Mickey, this I'm is, not sure you approach the ceremony with a reverence that's appropriate. Frankly, I, I'm first sorry. of all, it's rabbi, not fucking rabbi. Okay, <laughs> I, I have a, I have a, I have a uh, uh, ingrained hatred of rabbis because they're by That's definition harsh. Hate, actual they, hatred? No, but annoyance. They're by definition people who like to hear themselves talk. I mean, it's a self-selected group. There's no. That's a great point. That is such a great point. Yeah, most rabbis love the sound of their own voice. So I knew this rabbi had been convicted of child porn, but he couldn't stop himself from, you know, giving little Torah lectures. Most rabbis do love the sound of their own voice, and most rabbis do have an exaggerated sense of their own importance. And uh, most rabbis do do talk too much uh, and uh, with, with too much confidence about their own moral wisdom. Or like rabbi school you apply to and you get in and you're a rabbi. You just say, I'm a rabbi and I have a, I, I started. Is there no credentialing? And, don't you have to go I don't to... think there's credentialing. I think you just have to get a flock. Hmm. Uh, so I can so, be a rabbi. I, there, there, I, I don't I've know. Thinking it's about a... No, the, the credential is if you didn't get into medical school and you don't want to be a lawyer or an accountant and you don't want to be a dentist, then you become a rabbi. Time for a, career, a little bit of a career shift for me. Well, a friend of mine did post a license plate on Facebook that said Guru Bob. Oh, yeah? I, could, I, I couldn't figure out how to get it to you, but I'll get it to you somehow. Um, totally. But uh, so yeah. I, but I don't, the Jews, I don't think are your prime target group. But anyway, maybe they are. Uh, speak for yourself. I call, all I know is I call them rabbis, not fucking rabbis. I have respect okay, for well, the whole sorry. enterprise. Well, I do know rabbis who've, who've uh, played a meaningful and useful life in times of crisis for friends of mine. So if they just hold themselves in abeyance for the times of crisis... That would be good. But we have to hear themselves talk all the times of non-crisis. That's the problem. Wait, the metaphor was there. for the building of the meta of the church, the of the of the of the, you know, the, of the, temple, yeah, the Jewish church. church. And so it was a, church. so literally it was about decorating the temple, and the metaphor was about building the temple. That's not the most imaginative ext- metaphorical extension. Yeah, I, I've ever I was also annoyed at the guy because in the middle of COVID, he had us all sing songs. I, I just that. don't. Th- I just don't think. Well, it's it's a it's a super spreader event. Oh, there's that. Yeah, uh, singing is the worst thing you could do. So, um, anyway, it's... Okay, I thought that was really sharp. Mickey Cast nails it. Casey versus Fuentes. The Groypers have been completely scammed. All of the money that they've sent him in the mail was for nothing. Absolutely fucking nothing. The Charitable Foundation is a money laundering scheme. America First Thought Live was supposed to be the future of streaming in the movement. No longer would we be deplatformed or censored. We would have a safe, a safe space to broadcast pro-white views. But instead, it's all been a shameful scam. 
A con job. A lie. It's disgraceful. It's disgraceful. The service is peer-to-peer. Everyone can see your IP. If you're not using a VPN, you're going to be doxxed by Antifa. The feds are going to put you on a watch list. You better get that VPN going there, guys. Oh, by the way, the chat is, is, is done by Telegram. You have to give them your phone number to be in the chat. Yeah, just give Nick Fuentes your phone number there. Genius. Give Nick Fuentes your phone number. Give him your IP address. Give it straight to the feds. Give it straight to Antifa. Don't listen to Patrick Casey. Go to AF Pack and get fucked. Be put on a no-fly list. It's going to be a lot of sad groipers. A lot of sad groipers there, guys, who aren't going to be able to fly back home. Because they trusted him. They trusted Nick the Spick. They trusted the assistant groiper Jew. And now they're fucked. Now they're fucked. Let me show you, young groipers, who you're trusting. Who your leader is. Look at him. Look at him. Look at him. He's a full foot shorter than Lady Maga. Look at this situation. If these two were to have a fight, who is your money on? Is it on the Mexican boy child leader of the white race? Who's not even but five foot tall and looks like he weighs less than 100 pounds? Or is it on the tranny who's like six foot four? Looks like he outweighs him by nearly double. Just saying they're groipers. Just saying that's your messiah. The Mexican boy child. Half the height of Lady Maga. Looks like his lights could be punched out by any latte sipping soy boy. Because he's never lifted a weight in his life. He's never eaten a meal other than his mother's chicken tendies that are cold in the center. Because he can't even cook his own chicken tendies. His mom's there sending emails to MTV saying her own son is a far-right extremist. Sad. Sad, but trust that man who lives in his parents' basement gets yelled at by his father to shovel the driveway in the snowstorms. On game calls, wakes up at fucking 3 p.m. 3 p.m. every day and just plays video games until his show is pre-prepared for him by 45-year-old greasy fucking men. But yes. Okay, it's that special time again. Time to say goodbye. Turn, 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 turn. Oh man, you want more PPP? Okay, a little bit more. Go to AF Pack, give him your money. Give him your money. Bow down to him. Don't listen to Patrick Casey who tried to warn you. Yes, be put on the terrorist watch list. Be put on the no-fly list. Go down, boys. That's the way. Yeah, yeah, I bet. Fuck you, Fuentes. Fuck the Groypers. It's Groyper Civil War time, folks. Groyper Civil War. What will we learn on this edition of the program? Is Fuentes messaging gay bodybuilders? The answer is yes, he is. Is Fuentes in love with gay men? Yes. Is it all a scam and a fed honeypot? The answer 
is yes. On this edition of the PPP show. All right. Wow. Okay. Turn, 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 guys. Turn, turn, turn. Bye-bye.